Welcome to the CSB SCB podcast, part of the Canadian Society for Biomechanics. We are your hosts and student representatives, Jackie Zare and Francie Onet. Welcome to episode nine of the CSB SCB podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Cheryl Cozy. Dr. Cozy is a professor in the School of Physiotherapy and the co-director of the Dynamics of Human Motion Laboratory at Dalhousie University. She further holds appointments in the School of Biomedical Engineering, the School of Health and Human Performance, and she is a Nova Scotia Health Authority Affiliate Scientist in the Department of Surgery. Dr. Cozy completed her bachelor's in physical education at the University of New Brunswick, followed by a master's degree from the University of Waterloo and a PhD from Dalhousie University. Dr. Cozy has a long history with the CSB. She first joined the executive committee as a member at large in 1999. She was the conference chair of the 13th CSB meeting held in Halifax in 2004. And then in 2016, she received the CSB career award and was inducted as a fellow of the society. So Dr. Cozy, welcome. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking for a fun time here this afternoon. So to just get started with the questions, life as a graduate student definitely has its perks and it can be a lot of fun, but sometimes it can also be challenging and overwhelming. And when looking at more senior researchers like you, for example, we sometimes assume that your professional path must have been really well planned and also that it went pretty much according to plan. That said, some of our previous guests showed us that this assumption is likely not correct. And so now we're also, of course, very interested uh, to hear a bit of your story as well. And you can look back on an impressive academic career already. And we've heard from other guests that becoming a researcher and a professor was not exactly their goal when starting their undergrad or even graduate education. So did you always aim to become a professor one day? Uh, no, uh, I did not. So I'm probably following suit here. I actually wanted to be a Broadway singer and dancer. I'm just kidding. I can't sing. <laughs> but in high school, I got sort of introduced to kinesiology through my phys ed teacher. So when I went into university, I started off my first year of university taking my courses to become a physical education teacher. The great thing was that they had student teaching in your first year. And after my first four weeks, I said, oh, my God, I've got to do something <laughs> different. I can't do this job for the rest of my life. So I had a real interest in physics, math. And, you know, really like your biology's physiology and that type of thing. So I ended up doing a switch in my uh, second year. And we had a physical education part of our program that was just transitioning. And it was called a bioscience program. And that was really the precursor to kinesiology. So I went through that program. So that's kind of where I started. And uh, through graduate school, I thought I wanted to get involved in sort of sport science. And I had a rude awakening. One time I went to visit Sport Canada because they had a job that was bridging the gap between coaches and researchers. And I thought, geez, you know, like that sounds like a good one. So I thought I'd check that job out. And I met with the president at the time, which was great. 
But it became clear that they were really looking for a sports psychologist. And I said, well, you know, biomechanics is really important. And he said, yes, I know, but coaches don't understand biomechanics. And I said, well, isn't that a good reason to hire someone (laughs) to bridge the gap? Uh, Anyway, I kind of got introduced through one of my profs, Bob Norman at the University of Waterloo. He bought me a position at Wellesley Hospital in Toronto. And that got me kind of interested in the rehab because I was working with OTs and PTs. So that kind of began sort of an interest in that. But at the end of my master's degree, I didn't know what I was going to do. Thought I would go to medical school, but ended up being introduced to the director of the School of Physiotherapy at Dalhousie through Dave Winter. And that's where it all began. Do you remember what were some of the biggest or maybe most memorable challenges you had to overcome as a graduate student or a faculty member? Yes. I guess the one thing was, is I took a sort of a non-traditional route because I did get a faculty position with a master's degree, whereas now you have to have a PhD and a postdoc. And just remember 1999, Seems like a long time ago, but I started a long time before that. (laughs) So I think the key thing for me was I had two places where I thought I wanted to do my PhD. Neither of them were obviously in Halifax. And my thought was to, to do that. One summer when I was up visiting my husband's family in Ontario, I went back. I would always go back to visit my profs. And Dave said, like, where are you going to do your PhD. And I told him and he said, well, don't you have two children? I said, yeah. He said, a house with a mortgage? I said, yeah. He said, find a PhD program at Dow. He said, I took mine in physiology and biophysics. He said, you just need to get the degree. So I did do that. I I found a professor in physiology and biophysics who really focused on electrophysiology of heart muscle. And that's where I did my work And that's where I got introduced to pattern recognition and all of the the fundamentals related to that. That was a big challenge. But the biggest challenge was then afterwards, I got some very good grants to do electrophysiology of heart muscle work. And that wasn't where my passion was. So it was sort of like, how do I move back into the movement science related area? And that was a tough transition because, you know, just with changing your funding, like trying to get funding and those types of things. So that was probably my toughest sort of challenge, but was able to overcome that and things worked out. So you say you were always interested in the movement side of things, but then you worked on heart muscle. And today your research is broadly focused on bone and joint disorders, and you specifically focus on lower back pain and knee osteoarthritis. So was that always the end goal for you? Or did that specific field come up as your specific field of interest during your PhD? So that actually preceded my interest in low back pain sort of preceded doing my PhD. And AFTAB Patla at Waterloo was probably one of the first biomechanists sort of that used pattern recognition uh, techniques to look at waveforms. So I thought there's where there is this link to uh, to that area. And I had some good collaborations with an orthopedic surgeon here prior to doing my PhD. So the end goal was really 
to do research in that area. But just after you do your PhD and there's lots of different opportunities available for funding and that type of thing that I was really encouraged to do and was successful. But I was just like, you know, this doesn't really capture my passion. And can you tell us one aspect of your job that you particularly enjoy today? So the aspect of my job that I love is meeting new, bright young people every year of your career and having some sort of impact on their career. And especially like when people come back and, you know, sort of say, here's what you helped me do or those types of things. Moving on to your research that you do today, osteoarthritis or OA affects many people right now. And most of us who may not feel it yet are unfortunately very likely to also experience it at some point in our lives. Can you explain what happens to the tissues in the knee when an individual has OA? And can you discuss the societal burden of this uh, disorder? Okay, so with respect to the tissues, OA was thought to be a, a degenerative disease that was associated primarily with mechanical stimuli. And what ends up happening is you have an imbalance between cartilage generation or cartilage synthesis and degradation. So there's a homeostatic imbalance and you get cartilage degradation. The most common form is on the medial side, but it can also affect the lateral or the patellofemoral joint as well. Uh, what ends up happening is obviously the tissue breaks down. Now you've got some changes in, you know, how much joint space you would have between two bones, your femur and your uh, tibia, for example, and knee osteoarthritis. So it was always thought to be this degenerative disease related to cartilage breakdown, but it now is known that it affects all the tissues. So the muscles can be affected, the nerves, ligaments, etc., can be affected. So it has a profound effect on function, as well as pain is probably the biggest symptom that brings people to a clinician for osteoarthritis. Now, there are all kinds of risk factors And now we know that it's not just simply the mechanics triggering these biochemical responses, but there's reciprocal responses where the increase in inflammation actually creates further damage. But also, if you have increase in cytokines in your joint, there's also an increase in the associated amount of pain. So it is actually quite a heterogeneous disease that was thought to be more homogeneous. But now we know that there are more phenotypes where some have a more metabolic type of disease with like low levels systemically of inflammation and others might have an injury. So your post-traumatic type of NEOA. So it's pretty hard to go into all of the complexities with respect to that because it was also thought that it was mostly a nociceptive pain, but we also know that there's a neuropathic pain component as well. So the overall result really is this functional decline. And 
it's not just in people over 65. This shows up in people 40 years old and above and even slightly earlier. So it impacts your ability to do activities of daily living, work, participate in social activities. So there's a huge burden associated with this disease. And it's not well understood. And that was one of the big things with trying to make this decision between cardiac muscle and musculoskeletal problems. Cardiac problems are at the top of the hierarchy of conditions, whereas MSK disorders are not. But in 2017, the ORSI wrote a white paper to the U.S. What is it? The FDA? Yeah, the FDA. <laughs> and this sort of indicated that this is a serious disease because of the global burden that it's rising. There is no cure, et cetera. So we know in Canada, we have you know around 5 million people who have this disorder. And it's not just the healthcare costs that are associated with it, uh, because these individuals do have treatments and assessments associated with arthritis, but they also have comorbidities as well, like heart disease, depression, etc. So there's a huge personal burden, and that burden has a huge burden on the healthcare system and hence on the economy, because you have some people who are 40 to 65 years old that can't work as well. So it, it is a huge problem. From the list of publications that come out of your lab, we can see that muscle activation and the associated force production, along with interrelationships between muscles in normal and pathological conditions, has been focus of the work in your lab for the study of knee OA and low back pain. You alluded to it already. These joint disorders are really complicated and multifaceted, and there is a, a long list of risk factors that could potentially have caused the disease. And are there any specific non-mechanical factors that you have focused on in relation to biomechanical or clinical outcomes for knee OA and back pain? Yeah. In some regards, if we look at the muscle, like one of the reasons why I did choose the back and the, the knee is because of their inherent instability. And I do have that kind of crossing the biomechanics and muscle physiology perspective. If we look at that, the muscles do control the motions and the loading, but also the muscle is an organ. And they and the muscle is a very large organ when we think about how many muscles we have. And there are certain biochemical responses related to muscle contractions and sort of its work as an organ, which have also been examined with respect to OA. So we are interested in the muscle strength as well from a perspective of, yes, the loading, but also with respect to, you know, sort of muscle mass and it being an organ. We're starting to look at sort of radiographic evidence associated with OA and have used that as a method of assessing structural changes. And it's a very blunt instrument, and there are some flaws associated uh, with uh, using that, but it does give us sort of this overall metric that has been sort of standardized with respect to 
understanding the structural part. And now we're beginning to look at some of the interactions between biomechanics and biochemical uh, responses, looking at uh, some cytokines, for example, and comp. We've presented some of this work, but we're just preparing a manuscript from some preliminary work that we have because we also want to understand those interactions. And particularly with respect to trying to understand differences in sort of the mechanisms and the progression of females, which seem to have more of a pain and functional decline, where males have more a structural progression that are consistent with a more systemic versus a more mechanical type of OA. So so that's kind of where we are going. But of course, we use things like patient-reported outcomes and those types of, uh, of measures to get a sense of what the patient's perception is. And because pain is an important factor, I think just simply using a numerical rating score of pain as being the be-all, end-all I think from the literature is clearly not giving us a good picture. And there are other methods that are being used. So we use a pain catastrophizing scale as a measure of of pain cognition now um, and have been implementing pressure pain threshold measures to look at sensitization at both the local joint and the remote joints, looking at peripheral versus uh, central sensitization. And then with total knee arthroplasty, we were using radiostereometric x-rays to look at um, motion of the implants, both sort of medial, lateral, and compression. So back to the muscle and the mechanics, which is our interest as well. We've seen a lot in your published work and elsewhere that a common neuromuscular adaptation is the co-contraction of antagonistic muscles that cross a given joint. And in the low back, we often refer to this as a guarding behavior. And from EMG-driven and optimization models, we know that the f- muscle forces are a huge contributor to the joint contact loads. And so in addition to increasing or affecting the compression loads that are experienced by those joint surfaces, are there other implications of this adaptation in the OA population? I think one of the things is that if you're working at a higher percentage of your maximum voluntary ability, and you have both muscles turning on to produce that net joint moment, that you're likely going to fatigue quicker than if you are having a normal co-activation type of pattern, because there always is a little bit of co-activation. So I think that would be one of the issues. And we always talk about compression, but I think that the other thing that we noticed, and this was a paper that we had published in 2012 on uh, NEO-A in post-arthroplasty patients, where we did use the uh, RSA technology to measure both compression and translation of the implant. It's not just the amplitude, but it's the pattern of activity. And the prolonged activity in specific muscles, what we found was that 
prolonged activity in the quadriceps muscles and the gastrocnemius muscles explains significant variance in the anterior translation of the implant and the overall magnitude values did not. So I think it's a little more complicated than just the compression. I think there are other sort of instabilities in, you know, sort of the transverse plane as well. If you get in a normal joint that doesn't have a, an implant because of that similar pattern, is that actually getting into causing pain in a, in a certain range, for example? So for NEOA and, and perhaps even low back pain, at what point in the progression of disease from healthy to very severe, do we typically start to see some of the kinematic and the neuromuscular adaptations start to manifest? With respect to OA, much of the work was done uh, early on with really severe OA participants. And we had a study in 2006, actually two papers. One was by Scott Landry, who was a PhD student at the time. And the other one was a paper by myself, and his was on the mechanics, and mine was on the neuromuscular control. And what we found was that there were subtle differences in this mild to moderate group. And it was made up of individuals who were not total knee arthroplasty candidates. They had to meet a functional criteria, which was they had to be able to walk a city block, run five meters, and walk upstairs reciprocally. So we did find some of these subtle changes. And what was interesting, they were all medial compartment NEOA. And what we found was that with the muscle activation patterns, that there was this higher lateral muscle activation pattern with respect to the uh, quadriceps and the hamstrings. And then what we saw was that that actually progressed as we changed structurally. And this was a paper that was done by my PhD student, Derek Rutherford, where he looked at changes in structural progression. And some muscles had a nice systematic increase in activity but also what we found was that prolonged activity, like muscle staying on longer for a longer period of time during mid-stance phase of the gait cycle. So these changes can happen earlier, but the kinematic changes aren't quite as clear. Some of the kinetic changes were. And I think Janie Astefan has a couple of papers that really look at that difference across clinical severity levels and showing that things, for example, like the initial knee flexion angle has sort of a progressive increase from severe to asymptomatic, whereas the knee angle during swing phase is not different in the moderate group from the asymptomatic group, but the severe group is much lower. So there are specific changes that do differ. And I think you might expect the EMG changes to be more sensitive 
actually, because they are the things that are doing the controlling, right? So that's what I would say with respect to those data. Based on your research and your experience in the field, are there like effective ways to either coach or train or help individuals to alter these neuromuscular patterns that we start to see? So I think some of the programs, and I think the low low back area sort of went into this a little bit earlier with respect to trying to change activation patterns. And the OA group, I think, looking at now what they're calling more the neuromuscular types of exercise programs. So I I think there's a body of literature that is growing to support that. But Steve Prentice over in uh, the UK is doing some work in that area where he's looking at interventions that are really trying to change some of the patterns that we found in uh, our work through sort of gait retraining and those types of approaches. One paper by Brenneman and uh, Mally actually had looked at the the program that Monica had developed, with, which was based on a yoga, which is sort of a neuromuscular, like a control type of approach. And it didn't have any effect, for example, on the adduction moment magnitudes. But a couple of years later, when Brenneman re-looked at that paper using principal component analysis, she did see that the dynamic loading pattern that we have identified that is present in individuals who progress to TKA, i.e. there's a small peak, initial peak flexion moment and a small extension moment. So there's not that normal cyclic loading pattern. She found that that was changed. So I think there are some potential there. The key thing, however, is that we have to determine what is the best exercise based on a an objective assessment so that we don't just keep giving these homogeneous programs to a group and think that that group is a homogeneous group right and that's real uh, an important thing with respect to biomechanics and neuromuscular assessments is really developing those that will be able to differentiate and say, you know, here's the path we need to go with this person and not give strengthening exercises to somebody who comes in and, you know, has six pack abs or like quads that are Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? So speaking of gait, and this came up a little bit earlier as well, this is probably the most common task or movement that's used to study and compare these biomechanical and neuromuscular patterns between OA, arthroplasty, and asymptomatic groups. Are there other perhaps lower demand whole body movements that are or can be appropriate to assess the biomechanical responses associated with OA or those changes? A good question. And I think just sort of backing it up a bit with respect to gait, we can use that to differentiate changes that are associated with a fundamental movement. And we've shown how they change across severity levels. So that gives us a baseline, but they are also used to predict who's going to go on to progress either structurally or clinically. So gait is a very good model for 
that because it is the most common activity. So if we want to get an idea of joint loading and how loading affects OA processes, it's a good model to do that. But if someone is a carpet layer or someone works in a daycare, I know uh, Stacy Acker is doing some work where you're doing lots of bending at the at the knee, then we need to think about how that would get put into the model, right? So those would be some of the activities for progression. For severity, again, those changes are very important in gait because they affect mobility. And if we can see how someone is progressing, that helps us with understanding that because mobility is vital to take part in all kinds of different activities. But also, we would expect that there would be changes in when someone walks upstairs, walks downstairs, does a sit to stand, those types of activities as well. So for an assessment, that might be an easier assessment to do and looking at how some of these variables from gait are associated with those activities is important. So in the first part of the discussion, you were talking about this gap between research and practice, and it's actually quite fitting for some of the next questions that we have for you. And so you're positioned in a very unique spot as a researcher. You have significant experience studying clinically relevant disorders in addition to the strong background and the publication history and the more technical aspects of the biomechanics engineering. So doing the research is one thing, and then transferring the findings, making the recommendations specifically for clinical practice is an entirely different bear. And so can you tell us a little bit about that process and how you've experienced it throughout your career? So that is the the tricky one. (laughs) And there are lots of guidelines that are out there with respect to many studies. I think that the key thing is to have the strong fundamental research to support and provide the evidence that goes into these guidelines. And that's with respect to both assessments and interventions, and they're, they're sort of interrelated. And the process really starts with that. And then as you build the body of, of literature, what ends up happening is people will begin to do systematic reviews and meta-analysis and those types of things. And then you have sort of your consensus groups that are made up of experts who provide, you know, the guidelines, the written guidelines that, you know, might be related to exercise and OA or or exercise and, and low back pain. And then they may or may not be adopted. I think the key is that there really has to be communication with the end users (laughs) and making those links more. And we had those links with orthopedic surgeons, but that link was not as easy in the low back pain world. So I, I think that's how it should go. Now, the problem is, is if the evidence early on, and I think in particular in the back 
pain literature, there was a lot of systematic reviews that were based on very minimal data. And they were looking at this homogeneous group of non-specific low back pain individuals and exercise was evaluated. And initially it wasn't even divided up. Like it was just exercise and you'd read the paper and it was on, one was on flexibility exercises. The other was on strengthening exercises and those types of things. So it creates a little bit of a problem because clinicians really like to adopt things or to change a policy on, on something. You have to be providing solid evidence that can be explained and understood by the end user. And I think that's what we need to really work on with respect to our biomechanics work. And that's one of the things that we're kind of trying to do with this GateNet OA initiative that we have with the MSK Rehab Research Network is really coming up with some standard approaches to do it. Now, having said this whole thing, I think a big influence now really is social media. (laughs) I, I think that we need to take note of that. And just the other day, I got asked to make some comments about this new TikTok video that was showing how you could build like super strong abs by just placing a towel underneath your back and laying for a certain period of time. And the issue is, is that whole misinformation thing is there as well. So we now have that to contend with. So the process should be the fundamental research, etc. but also dealing with the end users, because with respect to people who have osteoarthritis, and they are thinking this is a degenerative condition that's affected by joint loading, that is a barrier for them. They fear that if they do these things, that it will negatively affect them. And many of the sort of intensity levels have been based on asymptomatic, healthy adults. And now let's just transpose that onto people who have OA. Well, you have a heterogeneous group from mild severity to severe, they can't even walk upstairs or that type of thing. So we really need to be able to provide evidence-based guidelines. And the American College of Rheumatology had a paper on guidelines for OA published in 2019 or 2020. And they said, we still don't have direct evidence to support parameters for individuals within these groups. So we actually do need more data to support these parameters. So we could continue to say, well, we know exercise is good, but then if you have, you know, 80% of, or not, it's not 80%, but it's a, a large percentage of people with back pain or OA not exercising and a large group of clinicians not prescribing because they don't have descriptive guidelines, then you've got a little bit of a problem going on there. So I think that the end users really are important. So engaging the clinical group, but also 
exercise in medicine, the arthritis society, those types of groups as well. But the researcher can't do all of that. <laughs> so we have, we have to figure that out as well. You can't do everything. Yeah. And this process that you kind of laid out for us can take up to years. And this often creates the delay between the publication of these scientific findings and then the associated impact at the practical level. So whether that be clinics, workplaces, or an exercise or training environment. Yeah. And so the next question gets at the incorporation of end users or more of the clinicians or practitioners into the research. And so with more recent emphasis from the major Canadian funding agencies on research having a more immediate impact and the direct involvement of industry partners, how have you integrated this network of practitioners or professionals that you've worked with over the years into your research or your funding packages? I would say that you know, our group is a multidisciplinary group that has engineers, clinicians, both orthopedic surgeons, we have physiotherapists, we have basic scientists. And I think one of the things is that you have to build trust and respect. Okay. And I think sometimes people think that automatically, just because they're doing something really well, and like, you have all these publications that people should automatically say, yep, you know, what you're doing is great and we're going to jump right in there <laughs> and uh, collaborate. I think you go in with the idea that you have a skill set that could be helpful and they have a skill set that can be helpful for you. So I don't ever say I know that someone should be having a total joint arthroplasty next month. Like that's not my bailiwick, right? So I think that's a, that's a key thing. And with respect to that is that every group has their own terminology and they might call something stability one thing, the engineer, the physiotherapist calls it something else. The orthopedic surgeon has a different definition and the biomechanist would have a different definition. So you have to be talking the same language. So I think that's a fundamental issue as well. And the other thing is, is that you have to understand that clinicians, while there are some, and I was lucky because I had two, Dr. Stanish, who was interested in, you know, sort of conservative types of management and Dr. Dunbar, who was, you know, more in the arthroplasty area. So that was a good combination. But you have to understand that they're treating a patient and they want something that's going to help their patient tomorrow, right? <laughs> so, so you have to kind of reconcile that. And industry is kind of the same thing. They have an idea and, you know, they want to work with you, but you also have to work at a different rate when you're working with them. But what you have to try and do is get the balance between continuing with the fundamental research and being able to take pieces of that that actually help either the clinician or the industry or whatever move forward. Yeah, listening to you, it really seems like collaborations are important and that they can make everyone's work stronger and more efficient and probably not only in a clinical setting but beyond that 
do you think that it is more difficult for an early career researcher to initiate or to become part of a collaboration than for someone established? And do you have any advice for how to approach potential partners if someone has an idea? I would have to say absolutely it's, it's harder to do it as a, as an early career. And, you know, mine, it was hard <laughs> to do earlier than it would be now. But I think that some of the things that I did mention earlier with respect to, you know, going in with an idea, try and find out, like, if it is a clinician, try and find out if they are interested in research or not, because that gives you sort of a foundation there to start any type of dialogue with them. But again, I think, you know, if there are opportunities that you could connect where you could make a presentation to a specific group, right? So, you know, if it's a, like maybe local physiotherapy association meeting in Waterloo or, you know, something like that, or if there are established researchers in your area who have links, see if you can get them to introduce you to some potential collaborators. And oftentimes that's really important to them to actually help mentor young investigators or their graduate students. So I think that that's important. And then some groups do have, you know, at Calgary, they have a very strong OA research group. So linking with them. And that becomes a little bit of a problem because sometimes people are told, don't collaborate until you get tenure or do something like that. And I think this type of work, you really need to have collaboration. And the um, Canadian Academy of Health Sciences wrote a position paper on team science And the importance of team science, I think it's 2017, was when it was written. But I think it's the same with, you know, collaboration with industry or, or other people. It's, it's the same type of thing. Because I think with biomechanics research, I think you re alluded to it earlier, is, you know, there is the pure biomechanics work, but that is limited with understanding all of the different components. And so the co collaboration also needs to be with specialists. Like I don't do the biochemical assays, right? Like whatever, I did that in, when I took muscle physiology at Waterloo, I won't tell you when, but anyhow, getting your links, asking your mentors for some help and that, because if you try and go like, just say, oh no, I, I, I have to do all of this myself not easy to do uh we're coming to the end of the episode oh, and yeah. for this last bit we have our five rapid fire questions for you and please try to answer each one in one sentence or less okay if possible <laughs> so number one if you could choose a superpower what would it be easy transporting myself from one point to another Just like in Star Trek. That's a great one. Number two, what is a place that you really like to go to or that you would recommend for people to go see in Halifax or somewhere else in Nova Scotia? 
So in Nova Scotia, I would have to say, hands down, it's the Cabot Trail because you can hike, ride a bike, take a car, but don't just go whip through it. Go check out the beaches, the hikes, and really take it in. Take a few days to do it. Number three, is there one thing that you tell or one piece of advice that you give to all your new students or trainees? I would say to trust the data. Number four, you must have given hundreds of presentations and lectures in your career. Do you remember which one you were most nervous about? No, but I would say all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and number five, what is your proudest scientific moment? I would have to say that was the career award from CSB because what it did was show me that I had colleagues who were willing to take the time to write the nomination and then had the support of the society. So I felt pretty awesome about that. So that concludes our ninth episode with Dr. Cheryl Cozy. Dr. Cozy, thank you again so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and please leave us a rating and review.